Her crimes outrivaled those of Lucretia Borgia. She stands singly and alone as the greatest criminal of modern times. Holmes, who was hanged at Philadelphia in 1895, was an amateur. Garcia Palasco, executed in the city of Mexico in 1867. Valderas Massini, garroted in Barcelona 40 years ago. And Maria Pollock, put to death in St. Petersburg in 1856, were angels of mercy as compared to this woman. Her recital of her crimes makes one's blood run cold. She is told of the death of her victims as if she were talking about a summer picnic at which she enjoyed herself. Of the fiendish subtlety she employed in ending human lives, the patience she maintained during the paroxysm preceding dissolution, the exuberance and joy which came to her when she saw their eyelids pressed down. No ghost has come to her in the midnight hours to disturb her dreams. No smarting of conscience visited her unnatural brain that excited either tears or sorrow. From the St. Louis Globe, July 6th, 1902. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy, and I'm not wearing any pants. I'm Scott, and I'm still wearing pants. I'm Amber, and I'm sad that I'm wearing pants. <laughs> this is the pants episode of Old Timey Crimey, mm. all about pants and no pants. So we are back to give you your dose of historical true crime. And boy, do we have a doozy coming up uh, real quick, though. Let's do rays of light. What's making us happy in this? Uh, this, this oh, Actually, real quick, Amber, why don't you uh, do the dedication before we do that? Oh, okay. Um, we are going to go ahead and dedicate this episode of our old timey crimey to a good friend of the show, Mr. Cody Wallet. Um, Cody is having a very, very rough week, and we just want to give him a shout out and a dedication to let him know that he is loved and we are thinking of him. I love you, buddy. So, okay. Yeah, Cody, we're definitely thinking of you. And uh, so, yeah, let's have our rays of light because I think everybody needs a little dose of happiness this week. I'm going to start Panda, baby, Panda. I have been every day. I'm on the webcam and I'm watching and I'm watching the mama, like, you know, pick the panda up and lick it. And <laughs> you can't really see it a lot most of the time. But yesterday, the mama left to go get some food and water. And the baby panda was just on the floor. And it was so cute. And it's getting the eye markings. So, yeah, that watching this panda slowly grow is an absolute delight. And it's something that I definitely needed. So, uh, Scott. Light it up. My girlfriend, Ariana, has recently taken up photography, and she is just doing so well. And it's beautiful to see like her photos grow day by day by day. And she has just taken some lovely shots. And I, I can't wait to see where this, this takes her in the future. Aw, that's so sweet. And that's, I can't wait to see some of her pictures. She oh, sounds very talented. They are gorgeous. I'll share some with you after the show. Um, they, they really are. Awesome. She's, she's one of my uh, Facebook friends and they are beautiful pictures. Um, so my ray of light uh, is that my brother is coming to visit. 
Um, so it, I haven't seen him in a while, so it'll be nice to see him. And then I have a long weekend from work because I took off due to his visit and the kids have a long Labor Day weekend from school. So they are off, uh, for a four day weekend. So we all have a four day weekend together, which is going to be fantastic. Nice family time. Amazing. Well, and it's it's the whole family. The whole family has a four day weekend, which mm. has not happened in a very long time. <laughs> so uh, that that that's exciting, and I've got some some plans that they're not going to like, but I've got stuff to do. So uh, <laughs> we're well, uh, we're gonna have a nice go of it. Somebody who had some some plans that people didn't like, but pr- probably not of the kind Amber's thinking of. Was, How do you know? <laughs> well, I don't for sure. <laughs> Was Jane Toppin. Jane also Toppin known. also gave a lot of people a four-day weekend. Yes, she did. <laughs> yes, she did. You're right about that. Uh, also known as Jolly Jane. Now, one thing I noticed here is that dates seem to be kind of off in some places. So some stuff I might say might sound off to you guys, but it, the... Boston Female Asylum had actual records that, that listed. And so I went, went by that uh, because it felt like probably the most accurate, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. In Boston in 1857. You said uh, it wrong. It's got to be Baston. No, I will never do that. I, I, can't, right. I can't make fun of other people's accents because I always just, I go straight to Australian. You're going to get hate, man. <laughs> Baston. Beans. Get in the car. <laughs> Irish immigrants Brid- Bridget and Peter Kelly. Uh, they already had three children, and then they had uh, Honora Kelly. And uh, I did mention they were Irish immigrants, I believe. So there are three uh, sisters all together: Delia of Honora's, Delia and Nellie, and then there's a sister with an unknown date. Delia was born in 1855. Nellie, we don't know, and obviously the sister with an unknown date. Um, yeah, don't know. So. Nora, as she was sometimes called, had black hair and dark eyes. And it was rough going from from day one, uh, from the very beginning. Her mother died of tuberculosis when she was only a year old. And her father, Peter, so now is left with four daughters. He is a tailor, although not a very Stable one. They they call him Kelly the Crack, as in crackpot. Not because and of his his penchant for low slung pants. <laughs> no, no, it was not that. Uh, there are rumors. There were many rumors that revolved around him. One of the ones that is definitely stuck is the one where at one point he supposedly sewed his eyelids together, making I his eyelids that. stuck as well. Jesus Christ. Yeah, he was a violent drunk, and it just really not good going from the start. He did uh, take two of the daughters. He took Honora, who was six, and Delia, who was eight, to the Boston Female Asylum, which was an orphanage, and then never saw them again after that. So I found some records from the Boston Female Asylum, uh, the orphanage he took them to. And it says in February 1863, the committee reported that two children had been admitted since the last meeting. They had no mother and had been offered for admission by their father, Mr. Kelly, whose habits evidently rendered him an unfit protector for his little girls. 
their appearance indicated that they had been rescued from a very miserable home. And so the committee voted to admit the two girls. And so let's talk a little bit about the Boston Female Asylum. This, uh, there were over 100 other kids there at pretty much any time. Breakfast depended on the season. You could either have a hasty pudding, which is grains cooked in milk or water, porridge or boiled rice with molasses. On Monday, they had soup. Tuesday, boiled meat. Soup again on Wednesday, pork and beans on Thursday, lamb broth on Friday, fish on Saturday, and roast meat and pudding on Sunday. Boiled Edu- meat? I know, right? Like, I it's think I'd rather that. have it raw. It doesn't sound great. No. <laughs> Jesus Christ, only guilty people would eat like that. <laughs> they did receive some education, but it was, quote, those useful things suitable to their age, sex, and station, end quote. So mostly domestic stuff. We, I also have. We teach the girls to be subservient to men at a very early age. Oh, boy. There's this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, have, I have a hymn that they uh, sang at the 13th anniversary celebration, which would have been earlier in the century. Uh, okay. This is what the orphans sang at the 13th anniversary celebra- celebration. KTEL presents Orphan Songs. <laughs> And girls defenseless, wretched, poor, snatched from the haunts of vice and care, from ill examples here secure, instruction and protection share, trained soon in wisdom's pleasant ways, and taught to be discreet and good. Virtue will be through all their days, from habit and from choice pursued. I like how they, from the beginning, had these little girls singing about how they were wretched and poor and defenseless. That's, that's not scarring at all. You're the trash of humanity. you'll never be good and that you can see every time you look in the mirror you just see yourself getting poorer and poorer and thinner because of the boiled meat that we force you to eat if you're lucky you'll die a sinner (laughs) i i feel like their bedtime prayers had something to do with your mother never loved you well that's why they're there yeah (laughs) Now, the whole point of the place was to care for indigent girls up until around age 10 or so, at which point they would be sent to a family. Sometimes there was actual adoption taking place, but usually this was an indentured servitude kind of gig. And they were really in demand. There were more requests for the girls than there were actual girls because it's, you know, basically cheap labor and so if anybody who wanted that which lots of people did you know um you know at first it was a no refund sort of deal but eventually they chilled out on that and allowed returns and they have some of those in the boston female asylum records and i'm going to tell you one right now this one's got no arm it had two arms whenever we gave it to you (laughs) but i'm sorry 30-day warranty i want my money back on this orphan Yeah, that's basically what it was. Uh, Agnes Parker was returned to the asylum by Dr. and Mrs. Mill with complaints of her stupidity and untruthfulness. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. This is a child. This is a child. These people are dicks. You know what, though? They didn't look at him like child. Like, this is a a servant. And the servant, who is 10, didn't know what we wanted it to do. Like, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I get the feeling like even more nefarious things were going on that I don't want to joke about. 
that occurred to me definitely. I hated yeah. that it occurred to me, but it occurred to me as I was mm, researching. Yeah. Yeah. Like like Wayfair shit going on. <laughs> but that's not actually real. I know. It's Nobody not is real. paying that much for a cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, so don't 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 buy into the QAnon shit, guys. Come on. The mail uh, was so slow that my cabinet was dead whenever it got to me. <laughs> The BFA did give awards to their girls if they showed improvement, truthfulness, industry, or obedience, but uh, neither Honora nor Delia ever got one of those, according to the records. Uh, at age 12, uh, Delia was farmed out to a couple. Her life did not end up well. She eventually ends up on the streets. She's performing sex work, which, you know, if, if it's working for you, yes, but it, I mean, it wasn't. She was an alcoholic and she, she didn't live a, a, a good life. And now Honora in 1864 ends up suddenly becoming an Italian girl after having been Irish all her life at the home of Mrs. Ann C. Toppin, who was a widow. She was bitten and by a radioactive Italian. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, she's grown a mustache and is able to do plumbing and kicks turtles all day long. Yeah, Mrs. Toppin was really not big on the Irish. She would say things to this child like, you can't help being Irish, but that doesn't mean you have to act like a patty. Whoa! <clears throat> yeah, and that, that definitely affected the child who took the name Jane when she uh, ended up in the Toppin home and also took the Toppin's last name. So she became Jane Toppin. There was never any actual adoption, and she called Mrs. Toppin auntie was, uh, you know, uh, it was 1864. She was like nine or so, in the, or seven or eight when this happened. She does end up absorbing a lot of the, 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 you know, racist bullshit that she hears around her and that is told directly to her face by her caretaker. And so she starts spouting lots of anti-Irish and anti-Catholic sentiments. Uh, she just constantly wants to reject her ancestry, which you know, nobody can blame you when people apparently hate you for it, you know, and you're just a child. Well, so, and, and yeah. then all the people that were supposed to love her in her life abandoned her. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She was never, never really seemed to feel, get the chance to feel love. And I think that had a, an effect on her. This was almost the perfect storm. It was like somebody was trying to create a serial killer. Really? Yeah, I know. She did go to school in addition to being an indentured servant. She did well enough in school, but then the New England Historical Society says, quote, she got unattractively fat, end quote. Fuck oh, you. I know what that's like. <laughs> Ouch. That is, um, come on, New England Historical Society. You can do better. You can, we know it. You can do better. So some people did like her, her, her peers and such, because she was a really good storyteller and she would tell these crazy tales uh, she loved to make up stories about her family. Her dad had, was circumnavigating the globe and he was going to settle down in China. She had this hero brother who Lincoln gave him a medal after the Silver, sil silver War. God damn it. After the Silver, civil War. I I'm sure talk. that Silver probably had something to do with it. Probably at some point. Oh, and there was also slavery. Yeah. Yeah. So she liked to do that. And some people didn't like that. They, they some, some kids didn't like it. And also they didn't like that she would gossip and uh, make other kids the scapegoats for her bad behavior. So, yeah, I think we can see why she never got a truthfulness award from the BFA. I, I will say this, though, in somewhat in Jane's defense, what 
probably what is the reward for being truthful? Like she's been taught to lie. She's been taught to lie about her heritage. Uh, she's been taught to lie about what's going on in her household. Don't talk about you know the way your real father was. Don't tell people your real name. Don't tell people you're Irish, you're Italian now. Her entire life was a lie. What reward has there ever been for her telling the truth? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, you're, you're, you're definitely right there. Mrs. Toppin has another, well, a daughter, I would say another daughter, but Jane is not her daughter. She has a daughter, Elizabeth, who essentially is a foster sister for Jane, but she's actually 27 years older. I was kind of surprised by that. Find a Grave has her birth date on, on her grave as 1830. And uh, although they don't have the marriage records, they do say that at the point in time that Jane was living in the home, that she came to the home, Elizabeth had already married. She had married a man named Oramel Brigham. Isn't That's he, a terrible name. Isn't that the That's dude terrible. who was always after the Smurfs? <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. So, yeah, you had this emotional abuse and humiliation going on in the household. And Mrs. Toppin also was did not hold back on the corporal punishment. Jane and Elizabeth did get along at first, and Elizabeth was fine to her. But eventually, Jane would grow to hate her. Uh, she had an extreme case of jealousy because of Elizabeth's normal life and future. She was going to she was going to get married. She was going to have a family. And Jane didn't feel like she could have that. At some point in her late teens or early 20s, she kind of almost seemed to get it. She was possibly courted by a young man. He was a local office worker. Oh, this and broke were... my fucking heart. Reading about I know, this, this was rough. She almost had it. She almost, she almost had, had it. what she wanted. It was within her grasp. They were actually engaged. He gave her an engagement ring that had a bird engraved on it. But then he moved and he had a landlord and the landlord had a daughter and that daughter eventually became his wife. So right. that ended. Yeah. Free rent. Yeah. And uh, now once of age, the family says she is free to go. And by the, the, the BFA's indentured servitude standards, what happens is you get $50 to make your way, which in, in the year she would have been around 18 would have been 1872, $1,200 today. Previously, before that, um, they would give you two outfits, an everyday like domestic business outfit, you know, just something to wear around the house while you clean up after other people, and a Sunday outfit. So they basically are saying your life is going to be drudgery and church. Have fun. Enjoy. If you're really lucky, you'll get to be a prostitute. <laughs> right. She actually ends up staying with the family for another 10 years. And... Now, again, sources very widely. This was something for sources because I saw some things that Mrs. Toppin died at some point while Jane was still living there. And yet Find a Grave has her dying at age 86 in 1891, at which point Jane was long out of the house. So I have no idea what was going on there. But whenever she did die, Elizabeth becomes the lady of the house with Brigham. And in 1885... Jane is 28 and she's like, I'm going to get out of here because this is kind of kind of awkward. But I mean, it was an amicable split. We don't know exactly why she left other than probably just was, you know, wanted to, to find her way or do something else. But 
she, you know, Elizabeth was like, you know, make sure you come back and visit. You're welcome anytime. Our door is always open for you. You can come back and, you know, sleep in your old bedroom, which was, you know, probably a cubby hole in the attic or something. And so then she decided to go into the caring profession. Hold on. That was after more than one suicide attempt, though. Oh, you have stuff about suicide attempts. Okay, do it. No, I, I just have the mention of um, a- after her fiancé left her at the altar, she tried to kill herself, and then she actually attempted it several more times before she decided to become a nurse, and that's actually what made her stop, is because if she was showing that she was suicidal, they wouldn't let her in the nursing program. Ah, I actually do have a couple of suicide attempts after the nursing program, so she, she went back to it. Uh, that, those suicide attempts, uh, though, that's a... Uh that's going to get her out of a lot of trouble later on. Yeah. yeah. Well, she did do it again later, but just in her youth around the age of 20, um, she, she, after her fiance left, uh, she was very, very mentally unstable. I mean, with her life growing up and everything and to have that, that grasp, like hope in your grasp and then just to have it, flutter away like a bird not to get too overly sentimental about the ring but it is sweet until it gets sad yeah i can i can understand it it makes a lot of sense and it's you know she she was never a particularly stable person and she gets less stable as years go on now now all of us know what's going to happen some of our listeners might not but i'm gonna i'm gonna pose this question if she would have gotten married had kids do you think that would have stopped it that is a good question for the listeners to think about. And uh, when we get to the end, we'll actually tell you J- Jane's opinion about <laughs> whether or not that would be the case. Because <laughs> she does have an opinion. Well, can I, in eight- can I throw my opinion in? Absolutely. I think had she had the opportunity, she would have been one of those mothers that um, would injure the kids to take them to the hospital to get the attention. I was thinking the oh, exact same. by proxy. I yeah. was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah, so, you guys are probably right. So I'm kind of thinking it's a blessing she didn't have kids. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, not for her patients and friends and family. Um, in, uh, in 1887, she went to the training school for nurses that was attached to the Cambridge Hospital. You were supposed to do two years as a student nurse, and you got room and board and $7 a month for stuff like books and incidentals, which comes out to about $200 today, although she would end up spending four years in the training program, so that's a little weird. Um, this is where she gets the nickname Jolly Jane. Her patients adored her. Her coworkers did not, but her patients loved her attitude with them. They loved her vivaciousness and her cheerfulness. And so they called her Jolly Jane. And her coworkers were like, yeah, she may be jolly, but she's a liar. She might be a thief. They, they suspected that she had pilfered cash from the, the hospital cash box. And a patient's diamond ring went mysteriously missing. And also she might have raided the supply room a little bit. And and the question I have is, okay, there's there's a couple, there's a spectrum here with raiding the supply room in a medical facility. And that spectrum runs from bandages to drugs, yeah. you know, and it's, it's really, the perspective there is very different depending on which end of the spectrum you're on. <laughs> Not many people are stealing band-aids. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. So, well, maybe. It was a thing, though. Her patients fucking loved her. 
the patients oh, they would, adored her. The patients would go, I don't want to be uh, dismissed from the hospital. I don't want to be checked out. I want to stay with Jolly Jane. Yeah, it's weird and kind of creepy. Yeah. So anyhow, with her patients, if she likes you, she wants to keep you there. So she's going to give you some more drugs to make you feel a little off so that you can't leave. And then she's basically using her patients as lab rats, giving them different dosages of drugs, morphine and atropine. She's looking at their reactions and she's basically shopping for the reactions she likes the best. She's like, well, you know. I like the pink, but I feel like it's not really good for my psychotic complexion. So, you know, let's try maybe something a little lighter pink. So she starts with morphine uh, and she would just wash them after injecting it uh, as they slipped into a coma. She, what she really liked, what really got her motor running, and I'm, I'm not, that, that's for real, uh, was when they went into convulsions before dying. She liked, she liked the convulsions. She liked to get a show, you know? Then she started mixing in atropine with the morphine, and atropine started to become her favorite because the symptoms were more entertaining to her. So atropine, dry mouth, blurry vision, light sensitivity, tachycardia, which is a fast heart rate, hot skin, flushing. Sometimes you would get constipation, anhydrosis, which is a lack of sweating, and rarely a delirium or coma. Uh, and Harold Schechter's book, uh, Fatal, on her also has uh, loss of coordination, babbling, and patients would go into kind of like weird spasms where they would pick, like picking at themselves and at the air, almost as if they were like a lot of bugs around them. It was, it was very um, kind of creepy. This caused a combination of symptoms that the doctors really couldn't figure out. So if somebody died after experiencing these symptoms, they'd be like, okay, cause of death, mm, heart failure, diabetes maybe. There we go. Okay, done. You know, mark it down. She really was pretty proud of her skills in doing this. She she was pretty – She this was something she was proud of. But what really drove her – was the sexual thrill. She's actually classified as an angel of death slash organized lust killer. And I had to look that up because I didn't know the difference between organized and disorganized. Uh, disorganized is uh, like, a, you know, a blitz. Um, and organized is more torturing. So that's how that works. I, I dug kind of deep into this. I actually found the name of the fetish. That she had, because oh Jane, like as as her uh, victims were dying, like whenever she gave them that final push over to the veil to the beyond, she'd uh, crawl into bed, stare deeply into their eyes, and uh, and knock their junk around a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah, she was. She liked to snuggle with them. Mm -hmm. oh, it's so gross. It's um, kind of a, a subdued struggle, snuggle. Uh, <laughs> it is called erotophonophilia. That is sexual arousal from the death of another human being. And that is your vocabulary word for the day. Make sure that you repeat that around children mm -hmm. and you will be quizzed next week. Make by, sure you by it. a court appointed psychologist. Oh my God. I would love for erotic phonophilia to show up at like the national spelling bee. <laughs> Can you use it in a sentence, please? No, I can't. Not with a clear conscience. <laughs> Not, not without getting a, a record that wouldn't allow me be, to be near a school. Don't you Epstein me. <laughs> 
So yeah, there is actually in her in her serial killer profile. There's the question of that they have a whole list of questions. It's it's oh, bonkers. Sex with the body after death, and that's listed as unknown. Whereas all the other post mortem activities that you might do with the body are just flat nose aside from robbery. You know, she, she did steal from a couple people, but she didn't always kill them. Sometimes she would just bring them right to the edge of death and then resuscitate them. So she got a kick out of that too. We, we call it edging. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> During her period of time at Cambridge, over a dozen patients might have died from her caring attentions. <laughs> yes, from her attentions. But while her nurse coworkers didn't like her, the doctors liked her well enough that they actually gave her a reference that was good enough to get her more training over at Mass General, Massachusetts General, in 1888. I've actually been to Massachusetts General. I had to pick somebody up. It was like 3 a.m. and I just remember like falling asleep with my hand on the chair and like my face on my fist and I had that... Your, your elbow keeps slipping and you keep on like jolting awake. Yeah, oh, that's, I've, that, that. I've been All there. Right. I have a question for you though. Do you think that the doctors likes her so much that they're like, here's an opportunity? Or do you think that the doctors are like, maybe you should leave and here's a way for you to not murder us? Here's, here's my thought on that. Just from, I, I used to work in a hospital. I've spent a lot of time in hospitals uh, not a lot of time as a patient, but a lot of fucking time as a visitor for family members. And I can tell you doctors are very hands off. They come in and then they give the, they, they talk to the patient for five minutes and then they give the orders to the nurses. If a nurse gets her shit done, if the patient's like her, she's a good nurse. It doesn't give a shit what the other nurses think of her. I, I think this was out of like, oh yeah, that's a good nurse. I'll give her a reference. Yeah, I think that in addition to that, her personality, she was really good at, at fooling people. And people just wouldn't suspect her because you don't see a jolly, happy, cheerful person who makes people laugh and think, oh, yeah, she probably has a dozen bodies under her belt already, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and, the, and the super weird thing, the thing that I think that, uh, that makes Toppin so fascinating to me is that whenever women murder, and I hate to put this under like an umbrella, but, uh, but it's, it's a fact. Whenever women murder, they do so by poison. So she's following that routine. But they usually do it for like money, uh, power, social standing. Here we have a woman murdering, albeit via poison, for the sexual thrill of it which almost seems like a trait of male serial, serial killers, much more so than women. In fact, for the first time ever, this is the first time I can think of a woman serial killer who was murdering for the sexual thrill of it. I do have something in my notes about male versus female. Okay, so yeah, this is actually... Um, Harold Schechter in his book Fatal pointed out that, you know, she actually preferred the friend acquaintance murder. And in that way, she was typical to female serial killers versus males who typically, and of course, there are always outliers. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there, there's, uh, there's no rule that can't be broken. 
Jane Toppin knows that. Um, and males generally do tend to keep it impersonal if they're serial killers, not just a you know, one-off thing. Or, you know, they do the all, all together strangers, you know. Um, so, so yeah, she, she was atypical in the sexual thrill way, really. That was, but I think that's, oh, it, it's, 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 it's just weird. <laughs> it, it, it felt so, so masculine, masculine serial killer that whenever I was researching this, whenever I got to like the end of the first article, I was 90% certain it was like, and then one, uh, during her autopsy, they found a big old dick. And, uh, <laughs> Jane well, was a man the entire time. Were you sad that there wasn't a big old dick? For the first time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that the sexual thrill came probably from the power of it. Oh, yeah. This is a woman. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is a woman who was absolutely powerless her entire life. She was powerless against her father, her real father, who just gave her up. She was powerless against the orphanage. She was powerless uh, against her adopted family. Powerless to keep a husband. Uh, powerless against like, like her employers. This is uh, the first taste of power, and she loved it. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say, but probably better phrased. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I said no. I said better phrased. That was a compliment. Oh, oh, I thought you meant I was going to say that, but oh. much better than what you did, Scott. Yeah, that's how no, I took it too. I, yeah. like, I I'm sorry. I meant better. the opposite. I, yeah. I meant you said it better than I could because I was just going to be like, yeah, she was powerless all her life, so she got some power and she liked it. <laughs> like that's where I was going to go. So. <laughs> so sorry, you thought that was a no. Slam. It's okay. We're all we're all very sensitive. <laughs> the the COVID got us all on edge. <laughs> no kidding. Actually, I'm fine with the COVID. It's just my mail. I want my fucking mail sped up. I know. So her coworkers at Mass General were concerned that she was giving patients too much medication. And at one point, she was put temporarily in charge when the head nurse went on leave. And probably more patients died while being nursed to health by Jane than survived. Then there was Amelia Finney. She looked the angel of death in the face and lived to tell about it, although it was very uncomfortable. She was in for a surgery. And Jane, after the surgery, gave her some medicine for the pain. Finney reported that the medicine tasted bitter, and then it knocked her out. But just before she fell to sleep, Jane snuggled up to her in the hospital bed and started kissing her face, like all over her face, like gross. Um, and then somebody surprised Jane, and she bolted. Now, Finney didn't actually come forward with this immediately, or for a decade and a half, because she thought it was a dream. But then eventually, when, uh, you know, <laughs> it became clear that probably something had happened, she, she came forward. And as we said, Jane did like to snuggle. And later she would describe her process mentally as, quote, soon the mania became an uncontrollable passion. No voice has as much melody in it as the one crying for life. No eyes as bright as those about to become fixed and glassy. No face so beautiful as the one pulseless and cold. Jesus Christ, calm it down there, Lecter. Right. So she does actually pass the final and get her diploma. But in the summer of 1890, she got kicked out of Mass General 
not for killing people, mind you, but she neglected to actually ask permission before leaving the ward. So apparently that'll that that she got she got lucky because normally that'll get you a death sentence, you know? Like like parking violations. Well they'll shoot you through the fucking head right then and there. And not front yeah. not front to back. They'll do it fucking ear to ear where you're sure to die. <laughs> now, the funny thing here is the final check, the diploma check, the nursing license. Nope, she never got her license. So what? this isn't. What the fuck is yeah. up with that? That happens so much. Yeah, right. It's I'm really, a doctor really now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's really not great. And so when she spends some time working as a private nurse and then manages to get back in at Cambridge, and then okay. So I think it was in Schechter's book that had this. Um, and if, if it was, then something somewhere is off. Because the story that was told was that she meets Maddie Davis when she's back at Cambridge. And Maddie is only 19 in 1890 to 91, somewhere around there. Got, got a fever. Uh, Jane was taking care of her. Gave her some meds. And Davis collapsed. But there was a doctor nearby who resuscitated her. Jane wanted to try the next day with a bigger dose, but another nurse was watching Davis, so she wasn't able to. The weird thing is Maddie Davis is going to pop up in another 10 years or so, and she's going to be, you know, 45 years older. (laughs) So something is awry, whether it's the name or what, you know, just a a mistaken name or mistaken age, something. But it, it is reported that she did meet Maddie Davis at that point, and she will pop up again. So um, one doctor there is worried. One person, one person is worried that she's ignoring dosages. And he goes and tells the board of trustees. And in 1891, they're like, you pack your things and leave. You're out. So she does, leaving behind possibly around two dozen murders. Uh, she said, quote, one of the physicians at the hospital suspected me, but he dared not accuse me of poisoning. So I was simply discharged. I didn't care about that because I had made up my mind that I could make more money and have an easier time by going out by the day in families. So essentially, you know, go to work for families and yeah, not good for them. So into private nursing she goes, which could financially be quite a bit better than working for a hospital. Now, in 1895, she's lived at the same place for the past seven years. And her landlord there is Israel Dunham. He's 77. But he's a little fussy for her tastes. And she thinks he's just too old anyhow. So she goes ahead and poisons him. As then you she do. stays living as you do. Yeah. Now his widow, Lovey, remained in the house, and so did Jane, still boarding with them. And uh, two years later in 1897, Lovey was getting, as Jane said, quote, old and cranky. And then she got sick. And isn't it handy that her tenant is a nurse? So Jane does her old standard, the morphine and the atropine, and that is that. Then she turns her attention to a more personal target, the possibly most personal of her life, her foster sister, Elizabeth Brigham. 
they had, you know, she had, Jane had taken Elizabeth at her word and had, she would come back and stay at the house in her old bedroom whenever she was in town. And Elizabeth and her husband, they liked having Jane around. I mean, she was entertaining. She told them funny stories and it was just, they, they never suspected anything. So in August, 1899, she goes for her usual Cape Cod vacation and she gets Jane uh, well, Jane gets Elizabeth to come along with. She says, hey, you know, you could use a vacation. Why don't you come out here? We can have a nice picnic and we can just hang out at the beach and party it up at night. You know, probably not that. But um, and uh, they go for a nice picnic. Uh, but there's a there's a little bit of mineral water in Elizabeth's strychnine. So. Oh, no. <laughs> Get that yeah. mineral water out of here. Right. That stuff's so gross. No, I'm just kidding. I love mineral water. <laughs> I hate strychnine, though. Not a fan. Jane said that Elizabeth was the first victim she hated and quote, I held her in my arms and watched with the light as she gasped her life out. Good fucking dog. Absolutely just cold and brutal. And Jane seems to have had a, a lot of motivation to get rid of her sister, not just that she hated her, but also that Jane wanted herself a husband and Elizabeth had a husband. So Jane wanted that. She wanted good old Oramel. God. <laughs> it's, it sounds like something you put on a tooth that's sore. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm not going to be able to get to the dentist for a week. Have you tried Oramel? <laughs> no. <laughs> this is horrible. This tastes like you. strychnine. <laughs> Can you imagine shouting that out in bed? <laughs> Oramel! <laughs> oh, God. So, your... Nightmares. Nightmares for weeks, Scott. Give me your Smurf-flavored <laughs> cock. <laughs> so, Jane, in addition to Elizabeth's husband, she also wants Elizabeth's gold watch and chain. So she goes to Oramel, you know, right before my sister's death rattle, she said that she wanted me to have her gold watch and chain. So if you could hand those over, that'd be great. That was her last wish, you know, kind of important that you fulfill that. And um, also completely unrelated. um, I'm running off to the pawn shop later today if you need a ride anywhere. So, yeah. So you're single now. Exactly. Uh, Once again, do you think this is more along the lines of trophy taking? That could be both the watch and Oramel. Yeah. Ew. That's such a terrible name. (laughs) What the fuck does that name even mean? I have no idea. I'm going to look it up now because I'm curious. I'm not. If I never hear that name again, I'll be happy. Oramel, 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 Oramel. Uh. (laughs) Oramel, Oramel, Boboramel, Foforamel. Oramel. Oramel. Let's do Chuck. Uh, there, it's not on. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Oramel is is like the vegan version of caramel. Yeah, <laughs> that is a possible. That that sounds right too. It, it it's the Made vegan version of beans. caramel, but it it tastes like Oragel. Oh my god! There is actually a company called Oramel. What do they make? Uh, it looks like it says Oramel is produced by a small and sustainable craft business. Founded by Paolo Perufo from the Cariazzo and Nicolo Sanfredi from Vicenza. It's a beekeeping business. Huh. 
It is not on any site so far. And this it is, is my definitely third site not that vegan. I've <laughs> I swear to God, some of these people just chose names by randomly picking Scrabble tiles out of a fucking bag. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. I'm on my fourth baby name website, and this one has, I mean, it's bell. Oh, my gosh. Belly ballot? Oh, my God. Um, it has... I'm not sure what language this is, but Onyekachi, Onika, Onofri, Ondrej, which means virile and manly, in case Ooh. you were wondering. So, yeah, it's, I think it's n not a name. Ondrej? That's a name you can shout. Ondrej. Yes, my dear. Ondrej. <laughs> Ondrej. Yeah, so that's uh, that's definitely... Ondrej knows anyway. a guy that can yeah. take care of any problem you have. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Come to me. Okay. I take you. I find the little man in the canoe and just lick him all over. So, uh, Jane, she actually poisons Oramel some, but she doesn't want him to die. She just wants to give him enough that she can play Snuggle nurse him. with him. Snuggle him. Snuggle him, yes. He was not about this at all, and he says as much. So then she tries to pull the old, oh, I'm pregnant, Gambit, and he tosses her out on her jolly ass. Like, she is gone. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. So we've been playing lots of Best Fiends lately, haven't we, guys? Absolutely. We love all the cute characters and the fun, challenging puzzles. So what are you guys really loving about the game lately? I love the global slug race where you get put on a team and your team has to win the most levels. A race just finished up and I'm on the purple team, which won. So I get some goodies out of that and it really gets my competitive side fired up. Oh, I wish I was on the purple team. I was on the orange team. Uh, <laughs> so, so was Jackson. So you were on the same team as Jackson, at least. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> All right. So level check-in time, guys. Where you at? I am at level 1381. I'm at 666 because Satan. I'm at 1805. <laughs> wow. You are leaving me in your dust. I told you that I, my competitive side really got fired up. <laughs> Have you found the end of the game yet? Oh, I, I actually have a couple thousand more levels before that happens. Oh, good, good heavens. <laughs> Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So then, another suicide attempt and uh, by overdose, and she fails. Now, I wrote in my notes, I hate to doubt any suicide attempt, but the fact that she can poison everyone but herself really does say something. <laughs> Also, okay, over on Detectives by the Decade, I did uh, the case of Anna Zwanziger, and it's almost like this is from a fucking playbook, I swear. Anna did all this shit. She did the fake pregnancy. She did the suicide attempts that were kind of like she threw herself into a river, but it was like barely deep enough for her to like wade in. Um, 
she, you know, and eventually she did the poisoning men to, you know, play nurse with them so that she wanted to marry. So it, it's all it's like I, I was reading this and I was like, did I suddenly like get into an article about Anna Zwanziger out of nowhere? <laughs> like, it's like they follow a freaking playbook. Did Zwanziger give the pre-death hand jobs? I would not be surprised if she did. Mm. You know what? Like every time, though, I think of, of her like snuggling somebody as they're dying. I'm just like death by snoo snoo. Oh, like <laughs> the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak and spongy. <laughs> right? I don't know. Rigor mortis produces some pretty impressive erections. <laughs> oh, anyhow, I'm gonna move on from that right the heck now. So next, as far as we know, is Mary McNear. She is a widow. Sources say 70. Gravestone says 84. I was on Find a Grave so much. Oh, my gosh. Seriously. (laughs) Uh, She was also the rich variety of widow. And on Christmas Day, she's out visiting family and she gets a little cold. It's just a little, like, tickle in her throat. It's just a little sniffles. It's nothing bad. The doctor says that she'll be fine, but her granddaughter is really worried and says, hey, doc, can you send over a nurse? And the doctor's like, yeah, sure, I'll send over my best nurse. And here comes Jolly Jane on December 28th. Now, at this point, McNear was doing just fine. She was practically right as rain when McNear's granddaughter left. And then practically before... The second she gets home, her granddaughter gets word that her mother or grandmother has collapsed. The doctor says it was apoplexy. I I know I pronounced that weird, but apoplexy? Apoplexy. That's the one. Apoplexy. There we go. Or a stroke. And McNear never wakes up and dies the next morning. And like I said, it's mostly acquaintances and friends. Jane did not know McNear prior to this. So this is the real outlier as far as her general pattern is concerned. Jane doesn't leave empty-handed. She probably took some of McNear's clothes. You know, she's a rich widow. She's probably got some nice stuff. And the family actually brought this up to the doctor who had sent Jane over, but he would not hear a negative word about her. I have to think that there were a lot of people who someday were like, wow, I was stupid. I hope (laughs) so. Oh, man. Yeah, I hope so, too. But people don't like to admit that they're wrong, so... January of 1900, keep in mind, it was just like a, a, a week ago <laughs> or so, or a couple months ago, uh, that the whole uh, Mary McNear thing happened. Next victim, Myra Connors. She was actually a good friend of Jane's. She was a widow, 40 years old, and she had something that Jane wanted. And that was her job as a, a dining matron dining hall matron at the theological school so why why would jane want that this is the one that confused me why would you want that something tells me the chance for you to give hand jobs to the dying are going to be much higher as a nurse than as a uh, than as like somebody slinging hash you have access to a lot of food and Oh, fuck, then I forgot about that. But still, it seems people weird. People are eating it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Damn it. Yeah, so that, that could have gone badly. Um, and she, Myra does fall ill 
the doctor diagnoses her with localized parrot. Let me move the mouse. Peritonitis. I wasn't going to pronounce it right with the mouse in the way. I can tell you that much. <laughs> and, oh, my, my odds were slim without the mouse in the way. And gave her opium and arrowroot poultices. And she was actually coming along nicely. And then on February 7th, Jane comes to help her friend out. And all of a sudden, Myra Connors isn't doing so hot. And the doctor is just totally flummoxed by her symptoms. He's like, what? I, this doesn't make any sense. You, 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 Not related to peritonitis. You were doing fine. I don't get it. But he doesn't have long to think about it because on December 11th, she died. And she was, quote, suffering such terrible convulsions that her left arm was bent nearly double. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. My, I've got like sympathetic pains in my arm. Yeah. So it was the strychnine here too. And Jane does go to the dean of the school and she's really big on telling, you know, putting words in dead people's mouth. Else she does it here again too. She's like, okay, so Myra was talking about how she wanted to take some leave. She just needed a little vacay, you know, before she died. And she told me that she was going to recommend me to take over the job for her. So this works. Jane actually does get the job in the summer, but by November, she's possibly sooner. She's been dismissed because she, some some irregularities in the in the bookkeeping. Sticky fingers. So then she gets some new landlords, Melvin and Eliza Beadle. She poisons them and their housekeeper. Uh, the landlords don't actually die. They just get ill. I think she was just kind of entertaining herself. She she was on a lark, you know. And the housekeeper, she does it so that the housekeeper will look drunk, which works. And the Beatles dismiss the housekeeper. And Jane gets the job. Jesus this Christ. This bitch, you guys. This bitch. This bitch. Then Jane goes off to see her uh, her brother-in-law again. Good old Oramel. Yeah. And his housekeeper, Florence Calkins, appears <laughs> appears in Jane's mind, not in reality, but in Jane's mind, to be a romantic rival. And what do you know? She died. So Jane poisoned her. I'm stunned. Oh, I'm shocked, yeah, that this woman who's poisoned so many people would poison yet another one and one who she thought was in her way. She's so stable. Now, back to Maddie Davis, the one that she tried to poison at Cambridge Hospital, maybe. All right. At this point, it's uh, early 1900s. Maddie is 62. She's married to a man named Alden Davis. They owned the cottage where Jane would vacation. And she, would, she did this for years. And it's the same cottage where she poisoned her sister. They, they were friends. She was friends with the Davises and everyone in town knew her. You know, she would she would babysit children while their parents went out and about. Mm -hmm. Just an yeah. all around nice person. Oh, yeah. Definitely somebody you want in charge of your children. So Maddie and Alden have two surviving adult children out of five. They actually had two of their children died in... 1883 at ages 14 and 16 very close together of diphtheria so God, rough going yeah disease-ridden times like that 
Minnie and Genevieve were their remaining daughters. Both of them were married and out of the house. And Maddie was suffering from diabetes and she hadn't been, there'd been a big heat wave lately. Or as I learned, they they called it a hot wave, which just sounds so wrong to my ears. (laughs) I hate it. Yeah. That, ugh. I don't hate that as much as uh, Oromel. What about (laughs) sweaty Oromel in the middle of a hot wave his balls making gravy from the sweat? I'd rather have gravy balls. <laughs> Not something you expected to say when you woke up this morning, but then again, you knew you were recording. Yes, yeah. you probably expected it. So she would tend to underpay her rent to the Davises for the cottage, and by this point in time, she owes them $500 in rent. That is $15,000 today. Talk wow. about being blind. Wow. Yeah. Five years of vacationing and underpaying at the end of the summer. So Maddie's like, all right, you know, I know she's a family friend, but enough is enough. I'm going to have to do this. It's not going to be fun for anyone, but I do have to go and I have to get the money. So she's going to travel. She actually, on June 26th, she heads out and it's rough going. Like she's already suffering from the heat. She's not feeling well. She falls on her way to the train and is not doing well then. She does make it to Cambridge where she uh, finds Jane and goes to her house and she's just overcome with the heat when she gets there. So Jane, happy hostess that she was, gave Maddie some mineral water. And by mineral water, we mean death. She would also sometimes put the the morphine and atropine in the mineral water too. So it should, you know, whatever whatever she feels like that day, whatever she's in the mood for, just take it as it comes. You know, you don't need to plan these things ahead. Whatever she took out of the supply closet last. Yeah. So Maddie collapses and is taken to bed, and the, it's assumed by the doctors that it's an issue with her diabetes plus the heat. And the doctor, actually, when he comes in, Jane has a urine sample ready for him that she took from the patient. Uh, But the sugar levels are awfully high. So she she tampered with it. This was a death that took seven days. Jane just plays with the morphine and atropine levels to sort of manipulate Maddie into various levels of consciousness. Until finally killing her. Now it really uh, June. I'm going to go with July second. But there was there were three different dates: July second, July fourth, and July fifth. It was I just hate hate it when there's so many things that are different. Uh, seven days. Good lord. Seven days. Yeah. Seven days. Jane later confessed that at the funeral. She was looking around at all the mourners, some of whom had come in from out of town, you know. And she thought, quote, you had better wait a little while and I will have another funeral for you. If you wait, it will save you going back and forth, end quote. So she had a plan. Christ. I know. She's just so cruel and cold. And Jolly Jane and wants to help out the grieving family. So she moves into the Davis household to help out Alden, who is 65. And his daughter Genevieve is staying there as well. She is 30, married, lives in Chicago. And at some point, (laughs) at some point during her life of crime, (laughs) 
Jane had started engaging in a little uh, recreational incineration, we'll call it. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> she got she got bit by the fire bug. And three times while she's staying there, she starts fires. Luckily, none of them uh, were successful, but it, it, actually, in the end, it didn't really matter anyhow. Spoilers. Um, she also then poisons Genevieve. And she makes it look like a suicide. She has a whole story about how she found Genevieve looking at the rat poison in the shed and blah, blah, blah. And the doctor calls it heart disease. Um, And Genevieve dies on July 31st, less than a month after her mother. Later, Jane would say, quote, poor thing. She was grieving herself to death. So life wasn't worth living for her anyway, end quote. And she also said, said about the funeral, I went to the funeral and felt as jolly as could be, and nobody suspected me in the least. Good fucking lord. I know, I know. It's just it's never ending. And In that vein, less than two weeks later, on August 9th, she kills Alden Davis. This was actually funny. Not, not that she killed him. Not that she killed him. But the St. Paul Globe has a very, very long article about this uh, after everything was said and done. And they talk about Davis having an argument with the undertaker over the bill for his daughter's coughing. Dude, I wouldn't fight that guy. That dude's huge. (laughs) Not that undertaker. And (laughs) how he was so fed up with this that he was planning to publish an article about coffin extortion. And his death was attributed to, according to the paper at least, heart disease aggravated by grief and by the dispute with the Undertaker. <laughs> Damn. So don't argue with Undertakers. It'll kill you. Or don't let Jane Toppin into your house. Also also a good idea. Uh, more the second than the first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Now, uh, one interesting thing about Alden Davis was that... He years ago, there had been a murder trial with a local man. And I read some about this and it's absolutely insane. This man had went went the religious mania route and he knew he had to make a sacrifice for God. And one night he realized the sacrifice had to be his daughter, a young child. So he killed her. Um, and then proceeded to bring all of his church members in to show them the body and say, don't worry, you know, she'll be up and about in three days. No, she was buried in three days. And so at his trial, actually, one of the jurors, I believe, uh, if I read it right, was Alden Davis. And he was like the lone dissenting voice uh, as far as, you know, he, he felt that the the religious mania had taken over and it was insanity. So, um a lot of them I'm doing by memory because I didn't write it all down, but it, it just occurred to me that it is kind of interesting that he, you know, would fall victim to somebody with a different kind of mania. Very not religious. So later on. And Jane said about this period of time, I made it lively for the undertakers and the grave diggers that time. Three graves in over, a little over five weeks in one lot in the cemetery. Well, it's business security, that's for certain. Mm-hmm. Now, the last family member remaining is Minnie. 
She is 39. <laughs> gotta, gotta make it a clean sweep, am I right? Exactly. That's essentially what she does. On August 13th, Jane doses her up and uh, gets... Now, here's... here's. Ugh. Okay. Instead of doing her usual snuggle party with the victim, she goes and gets Minnie's 12-year-old son out of bed and brings him to her bed. It is unclear whether sexual abuse occurred. Mm. But it's really weird. The death, uh, cause of death was noted as exhaustion. And first of all, okay. Minnie's husband was a sea captain. And he was actually away when all this was happening. From the very beginning, long periods of time away at sea. And he, when he left, his wife was alive, his sister-in-law was alive, his parents-in-law were alive. Can you imagine coming home to that? You come home, you've had no communication, and all of a sudden, your wife and her entire family are dead. Good God. No, no, I can't. I can't. Yeah. And no one was suspicious except for one man. Captain Gibbs, which was Minnie's father-in-law. So sea captaining runs in this family. And in fact, not only was no one suspicious, they were praising Jane for being so caring towards the family in their trying times. You know, it was just, it was just happened. You know, families just die off with it. You know, a, a couple of weeks of each other. It, it totally happens. I can't count the number of times. Yeah, I can't. So. One. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this is this is the time where people are dying of tuberculosis. I, I mean, if if it was illness, I could understand. But with all yes. these different causes of death, it doesn't I mean, make any sense why people would be like, "This is suspicious." Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we saw like in the Jack the Ripper episode, one of his victims had, you know, lost so many members of her family, like repeatedly in in succession to illness. So, yeah, illness, like with the two children dying of diphtheria so close together that so close together that they're if I'm remembering from my excursions on Find a Grave, they're buried in the same like they have the same headstone. (laughs) They share a headstone. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, I, I would think that somebody would be suspicious, but no, Captain Gibbs is the only one. So this is not a man that you want to have suspicious of you because he has friends in high places. One of his friends is Colonel Leonard Wood, right, uh, Colonel Leonard Wood, who was the first commander of the Rough Riders. Oh, my boy. I love me. Do you some- know who his... Go ahead. Oh, I love me some Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, I do know. That was his second in command. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this man was above Teddy Roosevelt in the Rough Riders. Do not fuck with him. Yeah. And so Colonel Leonard Wood goes to get Dr. Edward Wood, no relation, who was a well-known toxicologist. He actually helped to nail one other famous crime of recent memory at that time, Sarah Jane Robinson, who was called the American Borgia, as in Lucretia Borgia. And yes, I did add her to the list, so (laughs) we'll get to her. Jane goes back to Lowell uh, to try to get Ormel Brigham again. And his sister, Edna Bannister, is staying with him. She's 77. 
And then she's dead. Strange. So weird. People just die in droves around this woman and nobody even cares. Meanwhile, some people do care. Dr. Wood gets the DA involved and they get some of the bodies exhumed. And Jane actually read about that in the paper. Like too much, but she's, I think she still at that point felt pretty confident. They also get one John Patterson, a detective from the state police, to tail Jane. And he doesn't just tail her. He gets in there close. Quote, I kept her in sight and, in fact, became acquainted with Miss Toppin and was quite intimate with her, accompanying her frequently on trips to the post office. End quote. Well, if trips to the post office are uh, intimate, then... Uh, well, hey. Uh, it could I, be a really weird euphemism. You want me to it lick, could be. You want me to lick that stamp for you? You know what I mean. <laughs> so Jane is once again really trying to hook Ormel and it's not working. So she tries to OD on morphine and once again fails because she can kill everybody, not herself. Mm -hmm. And um, once again, Ormel tosses her out on her jolly ass. So she goes to visit a friend in New Hampshire. Dr. Wood finds large quantities of arsenic in the stomach of one of the Davises and so Jane is arrested on October 29th and is charged with murdering Minnie Gibbs. She pled, she pleaded not guilty. And then eventually there would be four counts of murder, one for each member of the Davis family. And she pled not guilty to each of those. Now, the state did think that, you know, you found the arsenic, so it's got to be arsenic. Well, no. The arsenic was from the embalming fluid, which was mostly arsenic. You, they actually used arsenic as a, you know, preservation tool, uh, just like formaldehyde. Wow, it slipped my mind for a second there. There are, <laughs> I found a, it. there are a couple of mummies that are in, I believe it's West Virginia. I've actually seen the mummies in person. They're the green mummies, and they're amazingly well preserved. Uh, what had happened was a local amateur chemist uh, in the late 1800s bought two dead women from the insane asylum, because that was the kind of thing you could do, and embalmed them. And for years, like everybody was like, how the hell did you do this? This was fantastic. And he never gave away his secret. His secret was he embalmed them with arsenic. And oh my it, pre God. it preserved them amazingly well. But then there was a flood and the mold started to grow on the mummies and they were green. Oh. There's a lot of grossness there. Like uh, that's that's too much grossness. That was summer. that was a wonderful summer for me. I visited the Green Mummies, uh, the uh, the grave of uh, Stonewall Jackson's horse, uh, then Stonewall Jackson's arm, and then Stonewall Jackson the rest of them. I went to <laughs> Dinosaur Land. Oh, it was it was great. It was a great now, great summer. Do, do the Green Mummies still exist? I'm looking them up right now. Um, dead, uh, the green mummies. Uh, I'm going to put in Virginia to see if anything comes up. Uh, yes, uh, Philippi, West Virginia. Uh, let's see, the mummies of the insane. And uh, Philippi, West Virginia. In 1888, farmer and amateur science Graham Hamrick bought two female cadavers at the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane, 
also known as the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Uh, this is all from RoadsideAmerica.com. And uh, West Virginia's own backwoods, Dr. Frankenstein mummified them with his patented embalming potion, just he had done in early experiments with vegetables, snakes, and the head of a man, uh, where he got that, who the fuck knows, that he kept in a jar. His goal was to unlock the secrets of the pharaohs and recreate their unique methods of post-mortem preservation. Uh, and it goes on to say, Hamrick succeeded all too well. The well-dried fruits of his labor are still in Philippi. Two mummies in glass-topped wooden coffins are displayed in the Barber County Historical Museum bathroom, and you can see them for a dollar a peak. This is true. I have done it. Uh, wait, 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 wait. A dollar a pee? Peak. A uh, peak. P-double-E-K. I look, totally a thought dollar you said look. it. <laughs> well, dollar. I thought you because you said it's in the bathroom, and then I, I could have sworn you said a dollar a pee, and that's why I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, nope. A dollar a peak. Um, yeah, the, uh, they, the mummies toured Europe for several years with P.T. Barnum. Uh, they returned to Philippi. They got lost for a few decades. They were found in a barn. Uh, they were stored under the bed of a local citizen. What the fuck, local citizen? In 1985, the town was inundated by 35 feet of flood water, and the severely waterlogged mummies were laid out on the front lawn of the post office to dry. Uh, welcome to Philippi, I guess. Uh, as 82-year-old museum curator James Ramsey, ex Ramsey explained in 1994, which was just the year before. 95 was whenever I visited the mummies. After the flood dropped, they were covered with green fungus and all kinds of the corruption. A man secured some kind of mixture that would get the green mold off of them and also the hairs that were growing on them. Today, air whisk discs in the coffins help stave off the aromas of time. Yep. Wow. And actually, the Allegheny, uh, the Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum has quite the horrifying history. If you ever want to read up on it, maybe we'll maybe we'll actually do a story on it sometime. But we should do a podcast to... from there. Oh my! Yeah, you can go on tours. I, I'm, I'm reading so because I knew I was familiar, and then I was like, Ah, yes, the the ice pick lobotomist did some work there. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. So okay. That was fascinating. Thank you, Scott. I had no idea about the green mummies, and I'm, I'm, that's so insane. A well, damn it. A little damn mini it. tiny. That's a little mini tiny. That's a freebie. That's a freebie for everybody. Free from us to you. Mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, Jane Toppin, I had said that the state thought it was arsenic. And like I said, you know, it was the embalming fluid was, was the source of the arsenic. Once again, Minnie's father-in-law, smart man. He figured out the truth right down to the specific drugs. This is a smart guy. I can just picture him with his very sea captain-y with a beard and the sea captain hat and a pipe and everything. And he's sitting in, in, a, in a den with a, you know, the pipe in his mouth and he's pouring over books looking for the symptoms, you know? <laughs> like, it, like, like, like some lady in a big dress who's kind of in love with him, but she, he doesn't really give her the time of day, pouring him a glass of tea and he adds a little shot of bourbon and she goes, aren't you sad that your family's dead? There'll be time to mow on after I capture the bitch. <laughs> yes, I love it. So many, uh, no, not many, uh, Jane, she's in jail. She got to be good friends with the jailer's wife who believed her to be innocent. 
and gained a bunch of weight. It was reported that everybody's fixated on her weight through her entire life. It's, it's really sad. After one court proceeding, it was noted that she left with her lawyer laughing merrily. The St. Paul Globe describes her thusly. Quote, Miss Toppin is 45 years old. Her reputation among physicians and patients has been of the best. She is a large, kindly-faced woman with dark hair streaked with gray. Her face has a jolly, quizzical expression and outwardly bears no marks of a different mind. End quote. She's a little butter pants, unquote. <laughs> so a panel of doctors examines her and trying to determine her sanity and they, yeah, she's insane. And actually what she wants, although at some points in time, she denies insanity very uh, lucidly. Quote, how can I be insane? When I killed those people, I knew that I was doing wrong. I was perfectly conscious that what I was doing was not right. I never at any time failed to realize what I was doing. Now, how can a person be insane who realizes what she is doing and who is conscious of the fact she isn't doing right? Insanity is a complete lack of any feeling of responsibility, isn't it? I mean, she's arguing with them. And, and honestly, I think there's like layers here. Like she's like playing like 3D chess in a way. She's like, if I insist that I'm not insane, they'll definitely say that I'm insane. And then I can get what I want, which is to be sent to the insane asylum. And then they'll see that I'm sane. And then they'll let me go. <laughs> so it's this whole crazy mixed up plan. And or at least she thinks she's playing 3D chess. On June 23rd, the trial begins. It's eight hours. It's one work day. Well, not then, but <laughs> one work day then was like 14 hours. Uh, Only if you're and, eight. If you're nine, you're going to work a full 16-hour day like an adult does. Exactly. And as you damn well should. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it lasts eight hours and jury deliberation is... Do you guys know? Did you see this? Can we play the guessing game or not? Uh, I did see, but I forget. Amber, I I think I know what it is. I, I'm gonna okay, be I'm mind. gonna be dreadfully honest. Once it gets to the trial, I kind of fucking glaze over. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, but I think it. I think the number was my date of birth, which is why it stuck in my head. I see. See, here's uh -huh. the thing. It's like the the growing up. Okay, that's gonna hold some clues. And and then and then there's the actual murders, which is just absolutely fucking fascinating. There's the punishment. Hey, that's great. And then there's the the trial, which ninety nine times out of a hundred, I just sit back and go, what a fucking mockery of justice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is in fact a twenty seven minute yep. deliberation. Uh, there you go. And she is deemed not guilty by reason of insanity. We almost never get these. I fucking totally disagree with this because here's the thing. She knew she was killing them. It, she didn't sit yeah. back and go, I'm making a cake. Squirt dead. 
Oh, look at <laughs> look at this lovely flower I'm picking. Somebody will enjoy this. Dead people all around. No, she knew she was taking lives just because she likes to toss one off and reach over and give an over-the-pants hand job to a dying man that she has made die. That doesn't mean she's insane. She fucking knew she was doing it. She just got off on it, and we can't comprehend that. So instantly we have to go, oh, she's fucking nuts. Put her in the asylum. No fucking killer. I don't agree with the death penalty, but definitely just toss her in jail for life. Which, I mean, uh, the asylum, she is gets a life sentence to Taunton Insane Hospital. Every time I see Taunton Insane Hospital, I think of Han Solo cutting open that kangaroo thing. Exactly, which was a tauntaun. Yes, yeah. I think of the exact same thing. Yeah, although when I say it, it sounds like I'm saying they're they're making fun of her. I thought this asylum smelled bad on the outside. <laughs> now, yeah, she thinks that this is the best possible outcome for her because, uh, as she wanted, she's like, "I'm totally sane," and the hospital will see that and let me go. And they they do, they do not, in fact, do that. Now, during her interview with the doctors prior to the trial, uh, I believe she did admit to 11 victims at that point. And afterwards, well, she confessed to her lawyer, I believe, at one point. And then he was like, I'm going to keep this under wraps until after this trial. Afterwards, she, she, she said her count was 31 but she was sure there were more she couldn't recall. Because, you know, the murder here, murder there, it slips your mind sometimes. Sometimes the, the, the days are just a blur. Oh, and that fucking quote she gave. That fucking quote gave me fucking chills. She, say, she said that her ambition was to have killed more people, helpless people, than any other man or woman who ever lived. That was what she wanted. And some people say the count could have been in the hundreds or to, to at least a hundred. Now, I have part of her confession where she essentially sums up uh, her life. That, that quote I did earlier about you know how she ended up being suspected by one of the physicians is part of that. But, okay, here we go. Soon after I became a nurse, 15 years ago, when I was about 30 years old, it came into my head, I don't know how, that I could kill people just as easy as not with the very medicine that the doctors gave their patients, morphia and atropia. After I had tried it in a few cases and it had worked well, and they didn't suspect me, I thought how easily I could put people out of the way that I wanted to. My first victims were hospital patients. I experimented on them with what the doctors would call a scientific interest. I can't repeat the names of those cases because I never knew them. They just went by numbers in the hospital ward any anyway. That was when I was at the Cambridge Hospital. Perhaps it was a dozen people I experimented on in this way. But you mustn't think I killed all the patients under my care in the hospital. I nursed back to health some very bad cases of typhoid fever. <laughs> right, so, so math? That's your excuse? Math? Yeah, something like that. She... It was for science! Eh. Yeah. <laughs> then, in the asylum... It's not, she, she does have a couple of, of rough years, as is detailed in the newspapers. Um, Jane Toppin, the poisoner of 31 people by her own confession during her career as professional nurse, the most cruel woman 
the most cruel woman murderer known in modern criminal history is now suffering for her sins by a terrible punishment at nature's own hands or God's. She imagines that the dead victims have risen from their tomb and are trying to poison her. And honestly, the, the headline of this, I just, it's, it somehow gave me a giggle. Um, Jane Toppin, who poisoned 31 victims, herself haunted by visions of ghostly forms. She has gone mad and screams in terror at every bowl of soup. Yes! <laughs> or cup of tea offered fearing poison. But I'm just, I, it's just the imagine of somebody like offering somebody a, a bowl of soup and they're like, ah! Get Earl in here. He looks like Vladimir Putin. It'll really set her off. <laughs> Although I do know one person who hates soup. So hi, Joel, if you're listening. <laughs> he might scream at soup, but he would probably scream, fuck. I'm sorry. Soup is um, good food. I enjoy soup. It I'm is gonna delicious. I'm going to have some soup after the show. There you go. Mm-hmm. Now, and then the same article says that by February 1904, she was greatly emaciated, having lost over 80 pounds or about half of her normal weight and was so weak that they were force feeding her with the tube for several days. (laughs) See, she moaned to the nurse. See how Minnie Gibbs has put morphia into my arm? And she bared her arm to the shoulder. The blood was dripping from it where she had scratched it with her own fingernails in her wild desire to dig out the imaginary poison. Yum. She also was not very well behaved. She had become very abusive to the nurses, defying their authority and inciting patients to do the same, going so far as to shout to a melancholic, that's somebody who's depressed, whom the nurse was trying to feed not to eat the food as it was poison. And yeah, she she doesn't do well for a while, but then eventually she bounces back. Many of our readers who have followed, this is in 1906, many of our readers who have followed somewhat closely of late years the life and history of Miss Jane Toppin will be interested to know that she is slowly regaining her sanity. She has gained wonderfully in bodily strength, and her mind has gradually freed itself of the hallucinations with which it was haunted for so many months. Miss Toppin is now taking medicine of her own volition and in quantities sufficient to give her more strength than she has enjoyed for a long time. Now, I was fine with her having visions and being terrified. I was too. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. So she did, as Scott alluded to earlier, if you're wondering uh, whether or not she believed that marriage would have changed the course of her life. Yes, she did. She blamed the murders on her marital status or lack thereof. Quote, if I had been a married woman, I probably would not have killed all of those people. I would have had my husband, my children, and my home to take up my mind. I'd kill them instead. Probably. Pretty much. She remained in the asylum until August 17th, 1938. She was 80 or 81, and she died of old age. Hmm. Unlike so many of her victims. I was going to say, that's too kind of a death. Very much agree. So, uh, that is Jane Toppin. Jolly Jane, that bitch. Do you guys have anything I missed? That was a very, very well done. Very well done. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, it was, you know it was what? fascinating. I did have this, and I don't know if this is true or not. But um, apparently some of the nurses in the asylum would hear Jolly Jane calling out, threatening to kill again, saying, get some morphine, dearie, and we'll go out in the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. 
Oh my. Well, look at that. Yikes. Somebody shit my pants. <laughs> yeah, she is terrifying. So yeah. Uh yeah, that's Jolly Jane. And gonna do my spiel now. Don't forget our Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. We have some offerings over there, lots of the tinies, some other stuff you can get. So come on over. And uh, if there's anything in particular that you would make you go on the Patreon, if there's anything you can think of, you know, like merch or, you know, a book club or articles or anything, shoot us an email or hit us up on social media. You can email us at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. And we're also oldtimeycrimey in Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also come there and find our content where we have pictures and media related to this week's case. Uh, there's that. Uh, come by my other podcast, Detectives by the Decade. And you can hear Scott and Amber performing some wonderful voice work. And I talk about the history of forensic science. So that's fun. Uh, oh, and if, as for the Patreon, if you're not the long-term relationship kind, we get it. We totally do. Sometimes you just want to have a little one-night stand. You can leave us a little buck on the nightstand. And guess what? That happened this week. Thank you, Elena Hockey. <laughs> I know, Elena. I she wouldn't actually, mind a dollar on the nightstand from her. I, I did not mind it at all. It was actually a buck fifty, so uh, we must have done really well. She gave us a tip. Ah. <laughs> so thank you very much for that. And you can be like Elena, who is one of our favorite people in the world. And you can... PayPal us oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com and like we said I enjoyed getting that dollar it was a dollar fifty it was a nice thrill and uh yeah so I mean a buck fifty a thrill sounds weird but it's just it's the, it's the action of doing it I think it's not the money it's the action so it means something to me I used to so, uh, I'm gonna have to do some guerrilla marketing here I used to take the phone numbers of people I hate and and write them on dollar bills and spend them I'm just going to have to start doing, like, listen to old-timey crimey on dollar bills and spend them. There you go. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, I'm not going to say this story on air, but do you remember that one time at Denny's? Yeah, I do. I'll yeah. never forget that one time at Denny's. <laughs> we're lucky to have survived. If we really are. We'll tell Christy after we're done. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. So, yeah, that's all of my spiel, uh, I believe. Oh, we also have an Amazon wish list. It's uh, in the link tree that is on all of our social media. Link tr.ee slash oldtimeycrimey. If you want to buy us a book, if you have any particular cases you're really interested in us covering, feel free to do that. Or if there are any that are not on the list, let us know and we'll add them. So that is that. What you guys doing this weekend? Apparently telling uh, stories from Denny's. Um, I am visiting with my family, and that's pretty much all I'm doing this weekend is just uh, hanging out and catching up and all that fun stuff. I am going to sit down, and I'm going to finish Bill and Ted Face the Music, because I've been trying to watch that movie, and I'm only getting like five or ten minutes at a time to, to finish the movie. And then I'm going to watch The Boys. On Amazon Prime. I fucking love that series. Nice. I, I have a couple things in mind. Uh, and I'm probably going to do these all at once. One of uh, our Instagram followers, uh, Killer Booze. Uh, I can't remember if it's Ultimate Crimey Detectives by the Decade or both. Uh, so 
she mentioned a couple of true crime movies that are available on uh, streaming. And she said that the TV movie of The Stranger Beside Me is available on Amazon Prime. And I was like, what? I have to see this. And the thing that really made this into a whole big thing was it has, uh, as Ted Bundy, Billy Campbell. He has been in a lot of things, almost none of which I have seen. The one thing he's been in that I have seen is The Rocketeer, which if I remember right, was one of like three VHSs that we had for the first like year or two that we had a VCR. And I was talking about this to Jackson last night and I had a realization. I was like, yeah, we had The Rocketeer and Grease. And then we had a VHS of the pilot episode of Beverly Hills 90210. And that was the first time in my life that I realized that that was kind of weird. Excuse <laughs> me, I'm just fantasizing about Jennifer Connelly in The Rocketeer. <laughs> like, why, why, why did we have, why? He was definitely I mean, the guy that played, I, I've seen The Stranger Beside Me. He's definitely the guy that played Ted Bundy the best. Because Mark Harmon kind of did it, did it okay, but not as good as, as Campbell did. But the guy who played Parker Lewis Can't Lose played Ted Bundy in a movie, and it is some of the most ridiculous acting you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> well, while I watch this apparently good rendition of The Stranger Beside Me, I'm also going to be writing letters. I am going to adopt some voters on Vote Forward, which is votefwd.org. I'm going to say that again because I'm not sure it got across. Vote F wd.org you can adopt voters uh i'm gonna be perfectly honest this is you know democrats this is they're they're people who uh, are not necessarily likely to vote but if they do vote they're likely to vote democratic and there are thousands upon thousands hundreds of thousands of addresses available in a variety of states including pennsylvania which is, actually has one of the most number of addresses you can do this, uh, you can adopt voters, and then you basically, they, they have a letter they pr you print out, and then you add your own flair to it, why you think voting is important. Nothing like super political, but just why it means something to you. And then you just put it in an envelope and send it away. I'm going to get some cool stickers to put on the envelopes. I'm going to use my calligraphy, because I think that makes people interested in the letter, <laughs> or at least I hope. Yeah, and I'm going to do this, and you have up until October 27th is the big send, is when all the, the letters are going out. Um, and this is a proven, effective uh, way of getting voters who might not have voted to actually go to the polls. Or, you know, well, I don't know if they can vote by mail at that point. But, and, yeah, this is very important to me. I did it in the 2018 uh, elections, and so I just wanted to put that out there. And it's something you can hang out put a movie on like the stranger beside me on Amazon prime and start writing letters to voters. And it's really a simple way that you can get active and help to uh, make sure that maybe things get a little better. I can't believe I missed the George Bush presidency. <laughs> I know, right? I'm wist so yeah, not to make it. I'm wistful for the days of George Bush. Not to make it political or anything, but it is, you know, kind of unavoidable at times. And that is something that I'm very proud of doing and that I feel is important. So if you are interested in doing this, you should go to voteforward.org. They do have to, like, verify you and everything. And, yeah, you should you should honestly, you should do that. I'm, I'm considering at some point maybe having a, a Zoom party where, you know, we all 
write letters if I can, you know, get enough people interested. So, hey, if you're interested in that, shoot me an email um, and I'll get that organized. So that is my shit. And with that, I think it's time to say thank you for listening to our filthy words. This has been Old Timey Crimey, and we will see you with more historical true crime next week. Bye. 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 My sources are Kate Hickey on irishcentral.com, newenglandhistorysociety.com, measuringworth.com, Crime Museum, Boston Female Asylum Records, transcribed by Anne S. Lanehart. Uh, Emily Allen, Elena Haverill, and Emmeline Cook in the uh, Radford University, Harold Schechter, uh, the National Institute of Health, Jennifer Myers on the Lowell Sun, Find a Grave, Bianca Myrtle on Film Daily, Amanda Sedlak-Hevener on Ranker, and the St. Paul Globe and other miscellaneous newspapers on the Library of Congress. My sources this week are wikipedia.org, newenglandhistoricalsociety.com, Murderpedia.org, CrimeMuseum.org, IrishCentral.com, and AllThat'sInteresting.com. Damn, guys. All right. My sources this week are AllThat'sInteresting.com by Katie Serena, Ranker.com by Amanda Sedlak Havner, and a new thing I found, which is amazing Deadly Women Wiki. <laughs> <laughs>